0: blog talk radio
1: welcome to the neil garfield show a presentation sponsored by www.livinglives.wordpress.com gtc honored and the garfield firm serving all 50 states with news and analysis
2: And hopefully good answers tonight. Hi, this is Neil Garfield here. This is Thursday, March 9th, 2017. Good afternoon to those in the Western time zones and good evening to those in the East. Follow the instructions you received. Uh, This is a question and answer session. Um, You got instructions when you called in uh, in order to show up on my studio board that you're waiting with a question. Attorney Charles Marshall will join me uh, again tonight as co-host to field your questions. We'll get to him and the questions in a moment. Several people have asked me in the last week, what's the bottom line? My answer is that foreclosures are on the rise despite the bank-dominated media. That foreclosure crisis is behind us. Home prices are declining, which means that foreclosures will ramp up to new heights. And foreclosures will continue to be about how much money the master servicer, whether it's disclosed that there's a trust or not, how much money the master servicer can get without ever being a party to the foreclosure. The foreclosure itself is basically the only path for the master servicer to cash in on yet another wrongful scheme. They wait until the servicer advances have piled up to the approximate value of the home. Then they foreclose through intermediaries. They take all the money, leaving the investors completely unprotected and the homeowner without a home. So the foreclosure in the bottom line is being pursued by a non-party who is going to take all the proceeds of sale when the property is liquidated. The foreclosure is not about the interests of investors who are going to get nothing if the foreclosure goes through. The investors are in the best shape if the loan is modified or a workout is achieved. It's all right there in the pooling and servicing agreement that grants the master servicer the right to stop making servicer advance payments when the master servicer deems it to be not likely that the liquidation of the house will pay off the servicer advances. And of course, as we have repeatedly pointed out, without objection from the banks and servicers, those servicer advances don't come from the servicers. They come from the investor's own money, which is classic Ponzi scheme. Thus, the payment to the master servicer is not a recovery of servicer advances because the servicer never advanced the money in the first place. Instead, the servicer claims and gets the money, extrajudicially, in other words, outside of a courtroom and outside of any statutory scheme. The investor is not wise to what is going on because none of this is reported to the investors or the courts. Bottom, Bottom line, you are fighting a ghost that never appears in the litigation or any part of the foreclosure process. They only pop up when the property is being sold to a third party. Everything else is a grand illusion, created with fabricated, forged, and unauthorized documents. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202 838 6345, our main number, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if the blog has value for you and all the work we put into that, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Charles Marshall joins us. Thank you Charles for joining again as the co-host of this program.
0: Oh, absolutely. Always, always good to be on your show. your show, Neil.
2: And I have to say,
0: the, the investors in these foreclosure schemes to some extent they're the, they're the forgotten man and the, the, the forgotten woman as as outrageous as the conduct and the results that are, that are literally dispossessing borrowers from their homes as outrageous as those are the investors only are done by they're only done right in these these schemes, they only get a good result if their investment is a performing asset. It's like any stock or bond purchase, or for that matter, the vast majority of financial instruments. The only way the investor makes out is if the underlying security is performing and these, these securities, as we all know, who listen to, to your show and are on your show now, uh, we know that they're designed fail we know that they, the market was designed to implode, and the investors are one of the major victims if somewhat silently in this in this whole scheme,
2: yeah, and the problem is they don't know it they don't know that they're victims it's kind of like the salad oil scandal for those of you who are old enough to remember that where the uh, uh, they had these huge things like what they keep uh, gasoline in, um, and uh, when they were inspected, they were pumping the oil from one tank to the next to make it look like all the tanks were filled. That's kind of like the reporting that the investors get. They don't realize that, the, that all these uh, loans that were supposedly acquired... In actuality, they were originated uh, with their money um, are gone, and uh, they they especially don't realize that that was the point to have these loan have as many of these loans go into foreclosure as possible, but only after the so-called servicer advances had piled up to be the value of the home. So uh, it's, it's annoying for me, having a Wall Street background, to see what's being done to the investors, and it's annoying to me as a lawyer and consumer advocate to see what's being done to homeowners in the process of screwing the investors amazing set of circumstances, and I can't believe that there is nobody in government who actually doesn't know what I just said. It's just policy to let the little guy eat dirt, and to let the little guy shoulder the whole burden. So
1: let's go to some
2: of our Let's let's go to some of our questions here to make sure that we cover as much as we can. We're we've got a 45-minute show tonight. Uh, first one is: What are the pluses and minuses of trying to use a TRO, a temporary restraining order, to stop the sale of property? And Charles, you can take that one.
0: Oh, sure. Uh, you know, in my experience in California, and I think this, this applies to the general principles all around the country, I mean, the TRO, it, it is a good uh, method to get postponements in a lot of cases. Now, there are some judges who are even more in the tank than usual for the lenders and servicers, for the securitized trust, and they will not postpone, even when you see Homeowner, rights, homeowner Bill of Rights violations. On the other hand, a lot of the judges, even if they're skeptical or somewhat skeptical about the underlying case, they will postpone at least for the TRO, particularly when it's right in front of the sale date. If the sale date is, let's say, two or three days away from the TRO, you often will get a postponement. Now, then you're going to have a preliminary injunction hearing It could be anywhere from two weeks. Statutorily, it's supposed to be within four to six weeks. I've seen the outside edge of that where it's practically two months, but statutorily, it's supposed to be pretty much within six weeks. But you will see a preliminary injunction hearing usually two to three weeks out from the hearing of the TRO. And that's a much more difficult, uh, hearing to win in these in these foreclosure matters, and you know over the years I've I've won a number of those. Uh, one of the aspects to those hearings is that a lot of judges will require bonds, and that can be a problem in and of itself because that can mean that can mean tens of thousands of dollars, sometimes more, even when you're looking at a ten percent uh, payment amount to secure the bond. Nevertheless, TRO itself creates, that favorite word of mine again, leverage. It creates a negotiating platform, if you will, so that when borrowers succeed with the TRO, they often are able, through their attorneys or even pro-per, to convince their servicers to either postpone sale dates on a rolling basis, and sometimes cancel them. Of course, the servicers try to get the borrowers to get into loan mod discussions, which may or may not be useful, but sometimes that's a trade-off that is worth it to keep sale dates off. So the short of it is there's never a guarantee with the PRO, particularly in California, that you will get the sales stopped, but it often is successful and even without the preliminary injunction, that would essentially solidify that later. It's 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 a good short-term remedy, and it can set you up for good settlement uh, discussions throughout your entire
2: lawsuit. So you basically uh, you don't have the bond problem with the t- uh, the temporary restraining order, but you do have it with the uh, preliminary injunction. Precisely. And what is the range of uh, uh, bond that you've seen? What's the lowest? What's the highest?
0: Well, the the biggest legal issue is whether you get the ten percent discount, which most judges will allow that. So what that means in the real world, if the bond is a hundred to two hundred thousand, which is not uncommon, then then your Piece of that is going to be ten to twenty thousand. On the other hand, you can see, and I have seen, bond requirements of half a million, four hundred thousand. So a lot of borrowers don't have forty or fifty thousand dollars lying around. So that can be a real issue. I mean, there are cases, and I've seen these too, and I've I've been the beneficiary of them, along with my clients. I have seen cases where judges don't require a bond, and that is a possibility. Uh, but anybody who's going for a TRO needs to know about that. Uh, but that doesn't mean you don't use the TRO to set up your case in a more positive framework. You can use it as long as it's successful in the hearing itself. you You don't necessarily... And you shouldn't, as a borrower, expect that the plenary injunction is going to be put there where it would basically stay your entire case. It's called a plenary injunction, but realistically, it's, it's really a permanent injunction, legally and practically speaking, as long as your case is pending. However, again, with the bond requirement, that, that becomes a real issue in and of itself.
2: So when you file those, do you automatically uh, file a list pendants?
0: Uh, Yes. I mean, with these types of foreclosure lawsuits, list pendants should absolutely be filed. And a question I get quite a lot from borrowers is since the standard of foreclosure pleading now is not to plead quiet title for a number of reasons, starting with the fact that courts are kicking that cause of action out pretty quickly in these cases, all too often. And yet, you can still still plead slander of title. Borrowers need to understand that as well. Even if you don't plead quiet title, you you can still plead slander of title. But even if you're not pleading any cause of action that, quote unquote, directly challenges title, even just pleading wrongful foreclosure and associated homeowner bill of rights claims, uh, you know, California Civil Code 2924.17, which requires servicers to be bringing but basically a proper chain of title into court, potentially, uh, to justify their non-judicial foreclosure. So the short of it is a uh, Liz Pendens can, and arguably it's required to be put on in California, I can speak to directly. Anytime, anytime title is impacted, uh, an example I like to use is even if, as, as a homeowner, and I don't think any of our homeowners out here in our listening audience, this doesn't apply to them, but it's a good hypothetical anyway. Let's say you have a whole revamp of your of your home, and you pay a contractor $65,000 uh, for all the work that uh, he or she is going to be doing, and then for whatever reason, you, maybe you have a dispute, maybe you don't maybe you run out of money, you only pay that person 15000 Well, that means that the contractor could sue you, put a mechanic's lien on your property for $50,000. And that particular individual, even in a case that doesn't involve title theoretically at all, you know, the better standard of pleading practice would be for th- that litigant when he's suing the homeowner for the $50,000 that's owed to him you know, for the for the contract to uh, to do remodeling, he should put a lis pendens on the property, because if you don't do that, you're not putting the public, the investing public, the buying public, anybody who might be looking at your house. And of course, if you're not a foreclosure, you you may not be interested in selling. But public markets are meant to be designed to essentially capture options of what people will do not not what they're planning on doing this week or today so the whole purpose of a Lisbon is just to tell the world through the recorded instrument and anybody who goes into the recording office they can see that hey there's a lawsuit concerning this property typically you would say there's a lawsuit concerning title but i think the better view is any any lien on the property associated with a lawsuit that needs to get a list pendens put on it to tell the world that, hey, if you buy this property, you're going to be, you're going to be taking on even more liability than you might think you are.
1: All
2: right, and okay, I'll take the next two that I've got here. Um, okay. I just received a notice of default. What are my options? Um, the answer is. In a non-judicial state, you just heard the answer from Charles uh, about a temporary restraining order or a preliminary injunction and list pendants. Um, keep in mind that under all circumstances in all states, there is no way to stop the sale of the property without a court order. Most of the scams on the Internet that have people calling or writing to you and they say, you know, just pay us $3,000, we'll get rid of this for you and all that, that's nonsense. The only thing that can stop the sale is a court order, a real court order. Precisely and
0: a TRO a TRO and a preliminary injunction in California will do just that if it's successful, but it's the court
2: order that stops the sale. So in judicial states, you get a notice of default. You're not already in in foreclosure. You've just gotten notice of a default. And under paragraph 22, uh, uh, the notice of default includes What is required for reinstatement, which, by the way, is often misstated, and it's worth looking at the numbers on there. In terms of the question, what are my options? Well, the first thing is stay calm. Most people, when they get the notice of default, they experience a form of mental and emotional paralysis and that's kind of what these banks and services are counting on so that by the time you actually get to a lawyer it's too late or close to too late so your your first option is if you think that the notice of default is in error either as to the numbers or the fact of default you respond with a letter and says i'm not that says i'm not in default and you make sure you send it certified return receipt requested. And the second thing you do, unless they uh, instantly say, oh, we were wrong, which in, in, in 20 years ago you, you had that. Uh, lately, I haven't heard of one cases where a bank or servicer says we were wrong. Sorry. So the next step is even if you think you can't afford to hire an attorney to represent you in foreclosure, you should go to one for guidance. And you should go to uh, both, uh, a foreclosure defense lawyer and a bankruptcy lawyer who might, uh, either one of them or both, could give you options as to what you can possibly do Uh, in bankruptcy under Chapter 7, Chapter 11, and Chapter 13. They're all available. The third thing you want to do is uh, engage in mortgage modification uh, discussions because there's a pretty firm rule on dual tracking. Those discussions, they are not allowed to uh, uh, pursue the foreclosure and finally you need to develop a, a narrative and a defense that is likely to get traction not something that you get off the internet that sounds good next question nobody will answer the questions in my QWR or DVL what do I do now Well, the QWR is a Qualified Written Request under RESPA. The DVL is a debt validation letter under the uh, uh, Federal Debt Collectors Act. And it often happens that you don't get an answer, although lately in the last couple of years they are responding at a much higher uh, percentage than what uh, they did before. Uh, What you do now is, depending upon what your overall status is, and that's why you go to a lawyer and not pretend that your Google search is as good as what the lawyer knows, and you determine if you're going to bring suit to get the answers. Because failure to answer within the time period allowed by statute which I think is 10 days now on the QWR, and I think it's the same for the DVL, but I'm not sure, Um, that's a violation, and there's a penalty for each violation, which is another reason for keeping your QWR and DVL uh, short. A lot of people send the equivalent of the encyclopedia. In their QWR and DVL, there's no point in that. Uh, You're much better off sending a series because each one of those, uh, if they fail to answer, would be a violation. And if you do get, uh, if you finally do get answers, that those answers are frequently inconsistent with the positions they take in court, so they should be read very carefully. And that is the first chink in the armor that you could create. All right, Charles, you're going to take the next one here. The bank is moving for summary judgment. What should I do?
0: Now, that's becoming more common now in in California. And I I predicted this, and unfortunately, uh, some predictions I like to come true. This is one that I would have been happy uh, were it not so much the case but it is the case and and the case that it is is this what's happening is that as the particularly the homeowner Bill of Rights proving to be both both a shield and even at times a sword to advance uh, plaintiffs cases for borrowers in California as these cases move to trial and there there are a number of situations where Nothing will stop the case from going to trial other than a tiny number of of potential pleadings, one of which is a motion for summary judgment. You'll occasionally see a motion for summary adjudication, which is quite similar. And then you'll you'll also see occasionally a motion for judgment on the pleadings. What all those motions have in common you know, apart from the fact that they substantively and procedurally relate to a lot of the same um, legal posture in in terms of how they're presented and what the burdens of proof are. But the other big thing they have in common is it it can become the last method, the last means for the servicer to prevent the case from going to trial. And so... They're being used a lot in California now, uh, particularly in Homeowner Bill of Rights uh, cases. I mean, in other words, where causes of action related to the Homeowner Bill of Rights, they're either the causes of action that went through when chain of assignment uh, causes of action did not go through, or they're the main causes of action regardless. And the way that plays out in the real world is the servicers, are doing a lot of discovery and really pounding the borrowers and depositions, bringing sanctions motions when they don't get completely compliant discovery it's it's the continued it's the continued battle and it's the continued war with uh with these institutions and unfortunately they're using all these legal maneuvers somewhat successfully i mean they are able. To get judges to sign off on um, a number of their motions for summary judgment. And I, I've, I've seen some questionable t- documents presented to try and show compliance with the Homeowner Bill of Rights. It's, uh, it's really I, pretty I'd
2: appalling. Add, I, I'd add to that that, you know, procedurally, I think uh, uh, key elements are, are in summary judgment. The only way the party moving for summary judgment can win is if they show that there is no uh, uh, facts that are necessary to be tried at a trial and that the case can be decided on the law itself. So the first thing to do is to file a... uh, an affidavit of facts, not opinion, uh, that is contrary to the position taken by the bank or servicer. And a second thing that could be considered is filing your own motion for summary judgment. Uh, Most judges, if they have competing motions for summary judgment, will deny both. And Uh, I would remind people that uh, no judge has ever been uh, reversed, I don't think, uh, for denying summary judgment because there's no harm. You just go to trial. They have been uh, reversed for granting summary judgment. So next question you can take also. Charles, uh, how do I find a good lawyer? Well, I think in California, you know, theoretically you have a
0: lot of options, but this area of law is so specialized that it's often difficult to find a good individual who's, who's going to have the time and, and take the, uh, you know, the needed analysis to to really see if your case is properly vetted. And I do think that even even as compared to other areas of law, uh, using referrals to figure out who you should take your your mortgage problem to, I think that's even more important in California than it is in a lot of other states. And I would also say that one of the ways you you go about the selection process is almost a checklist of of things that you might see, you know that should be that should be very off putting. Uh, depending on what your situation is, you might be willing to pay, and it might make sense to pay for some specialized advice. But generally speaking. Most litigation attorneys who are not in this for the money, and like myself, they're basically motivated by bringing down the services and the, the fraudsters who created this whole nightmare back in uh, 2009. And so free consultations are not a must, but it's not at all uncommon. So if you're dealing with an attorney prospectively who won't even consider a pre-consultation, maybe even over the phone, for anywhere from 15, 30, 45 minutes, if they insist on charging you from the get-go, then that is a bit of a red flag. I mean, there are going to be exceptions, but an attorney like that is probably doing a lot of billing and probably counting Every email and phone call and everything else, if you do retain them, and that can get extremely expensive relatively quickly.
2: Uh, The other thing, I I said they they still might be a good lawyer, even though that's how they handle the money. Um, That's true. That's absolutely true. And And the knowledge base, in in a lot of ways.
0: Uh, to use that that analogy again, it, in some ways it is more important here than it is in in some other areas of law. I mean, if you went to a patent attorney, you would want somebody with a lot of acumen and and kind of knowledge and background skill set about about patents and the you know having the scientific acumen to look into the details of so many of the types of uh, of aspects you would want to get patented. You would want to get patented. There are different kinds of patents, but a lot of them are scientific related. I think what you're looking for partly in a foreclosure attorney is, and this is not a must have, but it's a should have. The level of uh, deep analysis that goes into these loan level files to to unwind the contrived complexity as I like to call it it's it's really important maybe not critical but it's important and it's more than just helpful to find an attorney who has a deep background in financial services and i i myself did a lot of stock and bond trading actually out of san diego where i got my my series uh, licenses series 766 associated licenses back in the early 2000s and so i worked for some some major uh trading firms for a couple of years connected with that and it gave me the financial background and acumen to really break down what's going on with these documents and any attorney you hire if they can't do that themselves and they can't figure out what's going on behind the curtain, then they're going to have to rely on other individuals. And yes, a lot of attorneys, including myself, I will, I will contract with independent contractor support people to get my cases out the door to do some of the groundwork, some of the analysis. But at the end of the day, I need to be able to, to meaningfully review these pleadings, and I do. I need to know that the breakdown of the chain of title problems, I can see where the breaks are and I can document and analyze that. It's absolutely critical for you to have an attorney have that skill. And somebody with a deep background in financial services, it's kind of a marker for that. It's not a guarantee, but it makes it much more likely that they understand the numbers that people have to understand when they look at these types of cases.
2: I would agree with everything you just said. I, I, I would add uh, that having real trial experience, in other words, somebody who not only goes to the courtroom but has been involved in uh, at least a few dozen trials, bench trials, jury trials, et cetera, that guy is going to be better on his feet than other lawyers because, uh, and, and better prepared, uh, because uh, as all young lawyers found out and as I found out, if you're not well prepared for trial, no matter how good your case appears to be, you're still going to get the stuffing punched out of you. So the next one here is, I'll take this Oh, Neil, let me count to that. Neil, let
0: me speak to that just real briefly. Okay. I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, there's nothing like trial practice to to sharpen your own skill levels as an attorney. But also whether it's the case you're you're litigating or just cases like it, your level of kind of applied intelligence and understanding of all the fundamental issues, it becomes mm-hmm really sharply developed when you have to prepare for trial, when you're presenting in trial. And the other thing that will happen is if you've never been to trial, your first trial can almost create a little bit of a panic. Um, For whatever reason, I'm not quite built that way, but a lot of people do feel really nervous and really concerned when they go to their first trial or even, you know, their second or third And if you have an attorney who has literally no trial practice, that's a problem in this area. Because settlement value, as I I always say, it's dependent on what the fact finder will do at trial. And in the vast majority of these cases, we ask for a jury trial. We get a jury trial. I need to be able to do do voir dire with 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 a jury pool, I need to be able to credibly present my my client's case to that jury. And the other side, uh, the other attorneys, they need to know that I, I will go to trial. If they think that the attorney on the other side, meaning on our side, won't go to trial or hasn't gone to trial or, or has no experience in trial, they will take advantage of that in settlement they might even push the case toward trial knowing that the attorney who's never been to trial could become so concerned about the prospect that they'll simply cave in settlement and not push the way they should.
2: You know, um, I'm reminded of, uh, experiences that, uh, I witnessed in court with other lawyers. Um, One way, this is not foolproof, but one way you can tell whether the lawyer in front of you will be good at trial, not outside in the hallway where everybody's a big shot, but in the the courtroom. In the interview, if he or she is listening to you and not just waiting to say what they want to next – then there's a good chance that you've got a lawyer there that won't stand up with a list of questions and just ask the questions regardless of what the answer was without any follow-up or uh, proper cross-examination, which is an art unto itself. So uh, I think Charles's uh, exposition on that is well taken. I'll just do a quick one here on would an accountant be able to show that I wasn't in default? Well, there's a number of presumptions in that. Uh, But I'll first say that the time for accountants to be involved in this litigation uh, has started 10 years ago. And why accountants are not involved in doing audits and things like that to show the real facts and to also support requests for discovery based upon the auditing standards issued by the Financial Accounting Standards Board. Why that isn't being done, I don't know, but I know it should be done. Will the accountant be able to show that you weren't in default? Well, first of all, remember you probably weren't in default, Uh, when you stop paying because you were paying the wrong person. But assuming that you had been paying currently on whatever you thought the obligation was, the accountant should absolutely be able to show that and testify to it. And I think that uh, uh, greater use of uh, accountants, even bookkeepers, would... uh, uh, end up with uh, better results for homeowners in foreclosure litigation. And, okay, I'm going to skip down here because we've only got less than a minute to go. Um, uh, Who's really in charge of all this fabrication and forgery of void instruments? The answer is, uh, there's kind of two answers. One is entities like... uh, uh, Lender Processing Services, LPS, now known as Black Knight. Uh, basically, they're in charge of, uh, of fabricating and forgery and all published published menu list of, of doing exactly that. Uh, who, do they, who do they take their instructions from? It's basically uh, the big four banks, uh, from what I can see. Well, I thank you, Charles, for being with us. I think we covered more ground than usual. Oh, absolutely, Neil. Uh, um, uh, To everyone, have a good week. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show. For free information and advice, and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog, we provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.